Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and thanks for joining us at Back to the Bible Canada. In our final message of week three of He Made Me Human, Dr. John Newfeld will take us into the story of Cain and Abel as we understand the meaning of mastering hatred. So let's begin now from our passage in Genesis 4, verses 1 to 7. There are newspapers all over North America that will only report sensational murders. It's not possible to report everyday murders. There are so many of them. Their impact has been all but lost. You know, it's a sad day when we can even speak about an ordinary murder, but we can. But it wasn't always that way. There was a time in the history of this planet when there had never been a murder. Imagine that. No one had ever died at the hands of another. But what is overwhelmingly tragic is that the first ever human death happened not because of old age or because of disease or or due to some unforeseen accident, but the first human who ever died was murdered. He died at the hands of another. Genesis 4 begins the story of the fallen human race. Adam and Eve are now in sin, and they've been driven from the garden of God. A new way of life now opened up to them, a life that would know the reality of heartbreak. But we're not to understand that they now had no grace and were simply sold to do evil at the highest level. We remember that God had promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman. And so God put an intense animosity in the heart of the woman toward the serpent. Eve, even in her fallen state, sets her heart against the serpent. She was determined not to follow him again. She was determined to look for a savior, one who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. It's also clear that the family of Adam and Eve made worship of God a priority. When chapter 4 opens, we find Cain and Abel in acts of worship and sacrifice and dedication to God. They were not through with God at all. They would not have thought of themselves as enemies of God. In fact, in those days, God still spoke directly to people. It wasn't yet possible to be an atheist. I mean, that would come later as sin became more entrenched and pervasive and God became increasingly harder to find. And yet in this family that sought God, in this family that heard God's voice, their oldest son murdered his brother. Slowly, Adam and Eve were discovering how insidious, how absolutely horrible, how evil sin is. They would never be able to control sin. Even worship itself would also be affected by sin and would incite animosity against others. And that's the story of the human race. We do build societies where we make laws and build prohibitions to try to control the impulse of sin, and to some degree we are successful. But sin cannot be defeated simply by prohibiting it. And we soon find that human laws themselves are also influenced by the control of sin, and laws become unjust, and lawmakers can easily become oppressors and even murderers themselves. But these realities were still to come. Murder always strikes us as the ultimate crime. It seems to us to be the pinnacle of human depravity, that someone would take the life of someone else. It is therefore easy for most of us to read this story and feel somehow unaffected by it. After all, most of us have not murdered someone, neither have we seen murder in our families. Canada is still a peaceful place, at least to the most part. Yet Jesus said that murder really is a matter of the heart. He said it was possible to murder someone in our hearts. And we've all done that. We know what it is to hate someone. All of us know what it is to wish that someone wasn't there. 
Some of us have wished that our spouse would die. You know, I once spoke to a man after a a tragic crime was reported in which a government worker gunned down two of his colleagues and then shot himself. Now, this individual said to me, you know, I've often felt like doing that at my work as well. I just don't do it. And yet the impulse is lurking there. Most of us are convinced that we can control it. So where does murder come from? Where comes this desire to simply be rid of certain people? Why this animosity between people? Why open hatred? Why secret hatred? Why do we plot another person's ruin? What leads us to the point of murder either in our hearts or in actual fact? Let's begin by making a startling statement. Murder begins with estrangement from God. We come to Genesis chapter 4, so let's begin reading with verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. This chapter begins remarkably. This is the first human birth. Adam and Eve are witnessing a marvelous thing. No doubt also, Eve was already witnessing the effects of the curse in which God promised her that she would bring forth children in pain. But as any mother will tell you, once the baby has arrived, the wonder of the moment will often supersede the pain. And what she says is remarkable. With the help of the Lord, she says. Her comment reflects a deep sense of optimism. This has been brought about by God. You know, some Bible teachers believe that Eve's comment means that she believed that this boy was in fact the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. She might have believed that deliverance was right around the corner. Her son brought her glorious hope for the future, and if that's so, she was, well, she was about to be sadly mistaken and horribly disappointed and shocked. This is the first time a human being was born, and this was also the first human being who had no experience of the state of innocence and grace. He would know only what it was to exist in sin, and Eve would soon learn how terrible that was. You know, at any rate, Adam and Eve had a family. We don't know how many children they would eventually have, but given their lifespan in which Adam would live 930 years, and given that Eve must have been fertile for a long time, we can only imagine they had many children. I'm assuming they would have had at least a hundred or maybe more, and that, as we will see, answers the most obvious of questions. Who did Cain in the end marry? And the answer is, he married, well, his sister, of which he would have had many. But the text of Scripture is only interested in two of them, her oldest, whom she named Cain, and his name means to possess or to get or to acquire. He was to be a man who was intensely interested in getting things for himself. He would become a materialist, and he was driven by a pursuit of wealth. But the Bible mentions another brother, Abel, and his name means vapor or breath in that his life is unsubstantial and fleeting. In other words, their names are prophetically given. So let's continue to read from verses 2 to 5. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no regard. So the two boys, along with the rest of the family of Adam and Eve, must have been taught to worship very early on. The Bible tells us that they both brought offerings to God. Now, we're not told how they learned to offer things to God, but we do know that somehow offering up thanks for their food must have been related to their worship. But why was Cain's offering rejected and Abel's accepted? 
And some have interpreted this to say that God demanded blood sacrifices and Cain offered up a grain sacrifice. But I'm quite certain that this is not the right interpretation. The Hebrew word for offering in this text is the word minha, which means simply offering. And everywhere we find that word in the Pentateuch, it refers to a grain offering. But minha has a wider range of meaning. 1 Kings 4.21 uses this same Hebrew word, and here the translators of our Bible translated it as the word tribute. So in 1 Kings 4.21, And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute, minha, and were Solomon's subjects all his life. See, when you bring a tribute, you would bring gold or silver or the most precious thing that you had. It meant that you were in submission to your ruler. The nature of the gift itself is not the issue. What is at issue is that the gift, in order to be accepted, must be your most precious item. See, that's why Cain offered grain, for he worked the soil, and Abel brought animals because he kept the flock. But now notice the difference between the two. Verse 3 says that Cain brought some of the fruits, and verse 4 says Abel brought fat portions, and in the ancient world, the fat of the animal was the most precious commodity. Cain would have said, well, God wants something, well, fine. Then any old pumpkin will do something that I've got. And Abel said, I want to recognize God as my Lord and ruler and the author of my life. So I bring to him the most precious thing that I own. See, if there's anything that we can learn from this passage is that there are some forms of worship or some forms of spirituality, some forms of religion that God accepts, and there are some forms that he utterly rejects. God rejects worship that is not precious, and he accepts worship that offers him the most precious thing that we have. And when we come back, We're going to see how that works out in our own lives as well. As we begin to read chapter 4 of Genesis, the story of humanity continues with the next generation of Adam and Eve, the first two individuals to be born after the fall. The account of what took place between Cain and Abel still has relevance for our faith today, and we'll continue to examine what that means for our worship when we return. Back to the Bible Canada ministers God's word that we might become a people for his glory. Our teaching reaches individuals and congregations of faith, but homes of faith need God's truth as well. Households are the first places we learn to read scripture, say our prayers, and share the works of God. To help your family's spiritual growth, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is releasing an exciting new resource titled, Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents to help their families grow in their walk with the Lord. Back to the Bible Canada believes these precious times of sharing together spiritually are crucial. So we invite you to request your copy of Four Minutes for Frazzled Families as our free gift to you and your family by visiting backtothebible.ca or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Some time ago in my home Bible study group, one couple told the group that at the birth of their children, 
They laid hands on each one of their three children and committed them to the Lord for missions. They told that it was painful later as God called each one of them to a far corner of the earth, but they remembered their prayer and they gave the best, the most precious thing they had, their own children to the work of the Lord. I remember hearing a woman tell me that she had given her entire retirement account to ministry and I asked her, why? And she said it was the most precious thing that she had and that's all that she could do. Jesus told the story of a poor widow giving one copper coin into the offering, and he announced that it was a great gift, for it was all that she had. It was her most precious gift. There was a woman who broke a family heirloom, an alabaster jar filled with the most expensive perfume of her day, worth years of wages, kind of like $100,000, and Jesus accepted it as worship. It was precious. It was the best. See, good worship offers God the best. And that is a portrait of Abel. Later on in the Old Testament law, it would mandate a first fruit offering, which was from the very first of your harvest. The law would also mandate that when offering an animal, no animal with defects were to be offered. God is not worshipped when we offer him our castoffs. And that, by the way, is the principle of tithing. It offers God the first 10% of what you have, not an accounting at the end of the month to see what's left over. Each one of these principles reflect costly worship. Bad worship, on the other hand, is built around the idea of tokenism. It's like giving God a tip. I mean, have you ever given a waitress a tip? You know, a tip is very different from offering up a tribute. I never offer a waitress anything precious. I simply add 15% onto the bill. It's never a large amount, and it's certainly not related to my income or my best. Listen to Malachi 1, 6-13. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar, but you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifices, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Now you can see what Israel had been doing. They were bringing blind and lame animals to the temple for sacrifice. And if God wants an offering, then any old pumpkin will do. It is the sin of Cain. So here's the question. Would you withhold your income taxes at payday? No, because you fear the government. Would you withhold your best from God? Well, that would depend on whether you're bringing him tribute, the sacrifice of what is precious, or just giving a tip. Now, returning to our Genesis text, we find that in some fashion, it became apparent that God favored Abel and disregarded Cain. Now, we're not told how God looked with favor on Abel. We do know that in Genesis and in the early Bible books, the favor of God was often connected to material blessings. Now, it may be that God was prospering Abel. Abel became wealthier and possessed more than Cain. And remember that Cain's name means to possess, to get, and to acquire. So it seems likely that Cain saw that God had materially blessed his brother beyond himself and greed and envy and hostility overcame him. Soon the rest of the family would recognize that the star of the family was, well, Abel, and that simply was unacceptable. Imagine with me that up until then, no person had ever died. Yeah, they would have seen animals die, but never people. But Cain began to imagine, if Abel would just die, then he, Cain, would no longer be outdone. 
Wouldn't life be just better without him? I mean, why not? So let's read verses 5 to 7. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. See, murder begins with estrangement from God. If you're walking with God, you'll accept your lot in life. Listen to what Paul said. He's writing to the Philippian church, expressing thankfulness that they have become concerned for his physical needs. So in Philippians 4, 10 to 13, he writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. See, that's an interesting thought. A great many people do not know how to be content when they don't have much. A great many people don't know how to be content when they have plenty. We are people who are constantly aware that we are overlooked and might not be getting our share. And this is what begins to fuel that murderous spirit. Murder arises out of three sinful attitudes. First, envy. Listen to what James says in James 4, 1-2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet because you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. See, envy is the fountainhead out of which murder arises. Someone is in our way, preventing us from getting what we want. You know, I once heard of a father of a minor league hockey player who was suing the league for $300,000 because the league had not given his son the best player of the league award. He said that it had caused psychological damage to his son. Now, we might laugh at that and call it bizarre, but think of how we're not all far removed from that. How many of you right now are blaming someone else? Perhaps a brother or sister who got more of the inheritance than you did. Perhaps a teacher's bad grade preventing you from getting the career choice you desired. Perhaps a boss stopping you from getting promoted. Perhaps your husband or wife preventing you from getting the happiness that you think you deserve out of life. Whatever it is, it always begins with envy. And the next stage is anger. Listen to what God asks Cain. Why is your face downcast? Let me put it another way. Why is it that to look into your face, anyone can see that you're an angry man? And by the way, Do you know that anger gets written into our features? It seethes in the heart, and it shows in the body. Anger can give way to troubling psychological and physical diseases. Dr. Frank Minereth, a Christian psychiatrist, recently said that unforgiveness is the leading cause of burnout in people. Unforgiveness always arises out of anger. We've talked about envy and anger. There's a third attitude that gives rise to murder. It's called failure to master our impulses. God tells Cain that sin is crouching at his door. You know, in the ancient Mesopotamian world, there was a myth regarding a door demon, which crouched at doorways waiting to pounce on unsuspecting people. But in the Genesis account, we no longer have the serpent or the door demon, which is crouching, but sin itself. There is within every single human being a battle. You know, some have lost the battle, and now sin reigns without any opposing force at all. In Cain, this was still a battle, 
but he was about to suffer a defeat, sin would rule his life. And God tells Cain that now is the time when sin has not yet gained its ascendancy, when its impulses are still weak. It is now the time to master it. Sin is personified here. If it is allowed to grow, it will become unmanageable. Essentially, Cain is given one of two choices. Murder the sin, demonstrate dominion over it, or sin will so rule him and cause you to do unspeakable things. And every one of us has areas of weaknesses. It might be our anger, it might be our lusts, it might be our materialism, but whatever it is, sin is always crouching at the door to master us. I believe the answer always goes back to worship. Offer God the very best, bow before him, declare that he is Lord and the ruler of our lives who deserves our total lives. John, I, I found your message really intriguing. You know, we, we're talking about our sinful nature here, which we all have. And, and, you know, we all deal with anger issues and envy at times. But in a spiritual sense, how do we overcome this stuff? Well, I know the simple answer is always to say that we overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's, that's our answer, and it is a true answer, and it, and it shouldn't simply be put out there as, a, as an easy answer to get away from stuff. But the Holy Spirit does help us in our weaknesses. But from this text, I think there is something that is quite profound. Uh, there is a time when sin is simply being hatched inside of us. We can murder the sin uh, very early on if we uh, become diligent not to allow uh, issues of anger, lust, um, envy. I mean, all these things, we notice them cropping up early on. They are easy to take on in their early stages. If we allow ourselves to continue to play with these things and let them grow larger, they're very difficult to kill. So I, I think there's an answer that God gives to Cain, and that is, you know, sin is crouching at the door. It's seeking to master you. The time to get it is before it has mastered you. Uh, once it's mastered you, I mean, great work has to be done to be freed from it then. So I think that's the longer answer to the question that you've asked, Ben. The story of Cain and Abel, the first brothers descended from Adam and Eve, is in some ways the story of sin's ultimate effect. This has been a meaningful and important study for understanding the reality of what sin can do in our lives and our constant need for Christ's intervention. Well, we've wrapped up week three of Dr. Neufeld's series on Genesis 1 to 11, He Made Me Human. But join us again next week as we continue in chapter four with a message entitled Understanding Man's Inhumanity. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Every home depends on God's supply. Back to the Bible Canada relies upon His supply through the faithfulness of our listeners. Thank you for your gifts that allow us to make new resources to help support you in your walk with Christ, as well as sustain our Bible teaching programs. Your support makes this ministry possible. If you wish to support us in a form of a donation, please visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Or you may consider joining our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and have your contribution to this ministry recur on a monthly basis. To find out more about the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and the exclusive benefits you unlock by joining, visit backtothebible.ca fellowship 
or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.